Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Let me ask you something. How do you think salvation works? I mean, is Israel still God's chosen people, or are they on the same footing as everyone else now that the Messiah has come? Back in Offscript episode 17, Is Jesus the Only Way to God?, Brian wrote in inquiring if a Torah-observant Jew today could be saved even if he or she didn't believe in Jesus. He sharpened his question by pointing out how painfully aware many Jews are of how Jesus' followers have horribly mistreated their people over the centuries. In this interview, Matthew Elton deftly works his way through several of Paul's epistles, giving special attention to Romans 9 to find the answer. Whether you are interested in Jewish-Christian relations or struggle to understand the doctrine of election, this Bible-heavy interview is sure to stimulate your thinking on these important issues. Here now is Interview 17, Will All Israel Be Saved? with Matthew Elton. Welcome to Restitutio, Matt. Thanks. Good to be here. Today... I want to talk about a, an important question about Jewish and Gentile relations and the question of salvation for Jews and Gentiles. And this was really brought to my attention by Brian Allen in his comment. We had done an off-script episode on the question, is Jesus the only way to God? It's off-script episode 17. And Brian wrote in and said... Great discussion on what seems to be an interesting series about soteriology. That's the doctrine of salvation. I have something I'd like to ask you guys to maybe discuss if you can. To start, I agree that Jesus is the only way to the Father, but not that only Christians can have hope of entering eternal life. For this to be true, the mechanism of salvation would have had to change from the Hebrew Scriptures to the Greek Scriptures. I understand that what Jesus said is true, and it has always been true. Those men like Abraham, David, Joseph, Josiah, Hezekiah, etc., all came to the Father through Jesus, but this doesn't mean that God imparted them with the secret revelation about placing faith in the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus. They were certainly saved by their faith, just like we are, but faith in God's promises, which are described throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. I have Jewish friends, Messianic and Orthodox, What would make the Orthodox, who are well-read in history, want to believe in a Jesus presented to them? They are knowledgeable about the anti-Semitic teachings of Tertullian and Chrysostom and the Crusades, the the Spanish Inquisition, Martin Luther's anti-Semitic booklet, The Jews and Their Lies, etc. And to conclude, the majority of Christianity teaches that Jesus cancels the Torah, which by their and my own understanding means that he is a false messiah. I'm not talking about salvation of Hindus or Muslims or New Age crunchies. I'm talking about the people to whom the promises of God were given, the kingdom of priests, the light to the nations. Fortunately, we have Romans 9 through 11. There are Jews, I know, who are content with being hardened, as Paul says in Romans 11.25. They say that it's on God if they're hardened. What for? For the inclusion of us Gentiles. Further, in Romans 11.29, it mentions that the gifts and promises are irrevocable. Those are the promises and gifts ascribed to the Jewish people. To conclude, Jews who are in covenant fidelity today and who have been throughout history 
are only holding on to the promises that were given to them, and I have no reason to doubt that when the fullness of Gentiles is up, that God will soften them, and they will acknowledge their Messiah. I imagine it to be similar to Joseph's revealing himself to his brothers. He does not punish them for what they did to him, but welcomes and forgives them. I'm aware this is messy stuff, but I would love to hear you guys discuss this for a bit if you can. God bless and keep up the interesting dialogue. So, having received this comment from Brian some time ago, actually back in December, I had responded on the next episode, essentially dodging the question and saying I wasn't prepared to give a thorough answer. And that's why Matt's here in the studio today. He's done some work on Romans 9 through 11 in the past. He's written a paper on it, and I thought it would be good to hear what he has to say in answer of this question and to have some dialogue on this subject. So, Matt, where do you want to get started? Before we uh, really dig into Romans 9 through 11 and really break it down, I think it's important to just establish some, some background. Really beginning just briefly with Abraham, obviously we know that God made a covenant with Abraham, and he promised to make him the father of many nations. And, and from Abraham came Isaac, and then Jacob, who was renamed Israel, and from whom came the nation of Israel. And then, obviously, we know how Moses led Jacob's descendants out of slavery in Egypt into the land God had promised to Abraham that the promised land. God made a covenant with Moses, promising blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Then later, God made a covenant with David, promising that one of his descendants would rule the world forever. We know that that descendant is the Messiah, the anointed king, who is Jesus, and he will rule the world forever, establishing justice and righteousness on the earth and establishing God's kingdom on the earth forever. So from the beginning, we see God had a plan for the restoration of the earth, and it took shape through a series of covenants that he made with people whom he chose, namely the descendants of Israel. God chose them for a purpose, but we also see, even in the Old Testament, that his purpose was always bigger than just them. Right. Um, and, and I think Brian even mentioned this, how God had said to them in Isaiah 49, 6, that Israel would be a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. When Jesus came, his ministry was primarily to the Jewish people. He was a Jew, he was a Torah-abiding uh, rabbi, and his ministry was primarily to the Jews, uh, but there were exceptions like the centurion, the, uh, the Samaritan woman was you know, not fully Jewish according to the Orthodox Jews. But he said in, in Matthew 15, 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of, of Israel. However, we know that when Jesus died on the cross, his death on the cross, according to 1 John 2, 2, it was a propitiation for our sins, not ours only, but the sins of the whole world. Through his death on the cross, People of every ethnicity, every nationality could be saved, and not only be saved, but they would actually become God's people. They would be, they would enter into this covenant that God made with Israel. Uh, now Gentiles would also enter into that covenant as equal members. Well, let me pause you there. Are you saying that through the death of Christ, Gentiles are now part of the Mosaic covenant? Because that's the covenant that Israel was already in with God. Well, Jesus, you know, he instituted a new covenant through his death on the cross. Gentiles became partakers in the promises that God made to Abraham, to Moses, and to David. So the, the promises that were made regarding the kingdom that was going to be established, uh, Gentiles now became partakers in those promises. And so that's a different covenant. The covenant God made to Abraham and the covenant God made to David that you mentioned 
that primarily pertains to the future, whereas the covenant God made to Moses was, you keep the Torah, and I'll bless the land, I'll make it rain, I'll protect you from enemies, that sort of thing. Right. I mean, we know from uh, the Apostle Paul that Gentile believers are not required to keep the ceremonial and, and ritual aspects of the law of Moses, for example. We're no longer under that law. But my, my point is that not only when Jesus died on the cross and his, his death was a pr- propitiation of the sins of the whole world, not only did that make salvation available to, to all people, whether they, they're Jew or Gentile, but it actually uh, included Gentile believers into the covenant family of God, the people of God. Over and over again in the Old Testament, God, God was saying to Israel, I will be your God, you will be my people. And it seemed, with, with few exceptions, that this special relationship in which he was their God and they were his people, this was uh, exclusive to Israel. Right. However, after Jesus came and he, he, he accomplished what he did in the cross, it, this was now opened up to, to anyone with faith in Christ, regardless of their ethnicity, their nationality, their ancestry. And these Gentile believers, they were not second-class citizens of the kingdom. You know, they are now at equal standing before God and equally part of God's family. And I think that this is really important to understand before we even approach the question of whether all Israel will be saved. Is it, It's a point that Paul repeatedly makes again and again in his epistles, that although um, you know Jesus, his ministry was primarily to the Jews, but through the Apostle Paul, God really revealed this mystery that now uh, salvation and inclusion in his family had been opened up to Gentiles. And Paul writes about this in pretty much all of his epistles. Uh, but we see, especially in Ephesians chapter 2, where he talks about how he's, he's writing to the Gentiles. He says, remember, at one time you Gentiles by birth called uncircumcision by those who are called circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that at one time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one, and he has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law and its commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who are far off, that's the Gentiles, and peace to those who are who are near. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's speaking to the Gentiles. He's saying you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are now citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure that is the church, the, the, the people of God, the Israel of God, is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. It grows because more and more people are being added continually as they place their faith in, in Jesus Christ. In whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. So I think Paul's main point here is that this wall that had divided Jew and Gentile has been, has been broken down. And really in God's eyes, uh, because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, there is no longer Jew or Gentile. God no longer makes this distinction all that matters to him is those the, the people of faith and the people who are not of faith. 
Uh, so God is no longer uh, judging people on, on whether they're, they're, they're Jew or Gentile by, by, um, by ancestry or by birth or by blood. Rather, God is solely looking at a person's faith. And uh, now any, anyone who is a, a person of faith in Jesus Christ is included uh, with equal standing in God's, in God's covenant family. When you read those verses from Ephesians 2 about breaking down the dividing wall, I mean, in scholarship, there has been a development, what's called new perspective. And the old perspective isn't all that old. I mean, it's 500 years old. It's basically the perspective that Luther and Calvin and, the, and some of the reformers had on Paul, and that was the idea that he saw the law as this oppressive unbearable system that basically crushed people so that they would cry out to God for help. And this all uh, led into the reform focus on justification by faith alone. And then the new perspective, which was pioneered in the late 20th century by um, a number of Pauline scholars, E.P. Sanders, N.T. Wright, and a number of others, is that the law of Moses was not God's curse on his people, but actually a blessing <laughs> to them. And so it was this wonderful gift he gave them as a way of life to testify to his glory and his wisdom. And that what Paul's doing is he's talking about how, I mean, it's pretty clear here in Ephesians 2, this law has come down because it was a dividing boundary that kept the Gentiles and the Jews separate. I mean, there's no question about that. But that was there so that they could be distinct in how they lived to, sh to testify and show the world God's, God's grace and God's glory and God's wisdom. So that, that's a very different kind of perspective. But even so, even if you go with a new perspective, which, which I find pretty compelling, Gentile Christians are not called to keep the law of Moses, and Jewish Christians are also not called to keep the law of Moses because that wall has been broken down. And so it's not that Gentiles have been brought into the covenant of Moses, but that Gentiles and Jews together have been brought into the new covenant. And this new covenant is not lived out with reference to the law of Moses. It's, it's lived out by the Spirit and in fidelity with the words of Christ. And I know that's not your topic for today, exactly, but it's, it's something that always comes up. Do, do I need to keep the Sabbath as a Gentile? What about a Jew? So you're telling me that a Jew doesn't have to avoid bacon <laughs> if they're a Christian, right? And that can be very shocking, especially for a Torah-observant person. But what we're talking about here is a radical reconfiguration of God's dealing with His people and also these Gentiles that are coming into the faith. And th these are massive shifts. And, and the analogy I think of is the, the man who gathered sticks on the Sabbath. After the Sabbath had already been instituted by Moses, this is like a first-generation guy, and he knew there was a Sabbath, and he still wanted to gather sticks on the Sabbath. And the people told on him to Moses, and Moses said to God, what should I do? And God said, execute him kill the guy. And it sounds like a very harsh penalty, but he was refusing to get on board with the new covenant that God had brought in. At that time, the old covenant was the new covenant because 
It was the most recent one. And so now that God has brought in a new covenant, we are expected to change. We are expected to get with God's program, to get with the Messiah, so to speak, and His way, which is, which is new wine and new wineskins. It's not, it's not the old wine. So let's keep going. What do we have next yeah, I mean, year? That, that's a really good point. And he says right here in Ephesians 2, he has a balance of law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two. Right. Thus making peace and might reconcile both groups of God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So that is a good point that um, the, the, there's a unification that has taken place between the Jew and the Gentile, uh, but it's not as if uh, Gentiles have now just been brought in under, underneath of uh, the law of Moses, uh, but rather he, God uh, created a, a whole new humanity in place of the two. So, so there is no longer, and we're going to see this in, in this next passage that we're going to look at, uh, there, there is no longer Jew or Gentile. There's, there's a new humanity. That is, and it, the whole old system where the, there was a division between Jew and Gentile, that entire system has been torn down through Christ. So I think even the question, will all Israel or, or will, will all Jews be saved, is a little bit misguided because from God's perspective, he's not even recognizing this division between Jew and Gentile anymore. That whole division has been eliminated. And th- that's exactly what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is no longer Jew or Greek. Uh, another translation says, there is no longer Jew or Gentile. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So this is how God is looking at people. Yeah, so God is looking, so as human beings kind of, you know, uh, reading the Old Testament and the New Testament, we're, we're we're tempted to look at the, the present day situation and say, well, you got Jews, people who are you know, Hebrew and they're descended from, from Abraham and from Israel, uh, and then you have Gentiles. But God, God is not even looking at the world that way. God is, God, from God's perspective, there is, there is no such thing as a Jew or a Gentile. All that matters is there are believers in Christ and there are people who do not yet believe in Christ. Uh, and Paul says here, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. So when you ask the question, will all Jews or will all Israel be saved, uh, you really have to define what, what you mean by that. Uh, if right. You, if you're asking the question, will all people who are, I think usually what people mean by that question is, will, will all people who are Abraham's offspring be saved? But according to Paul, the people who are truly Abraham's offspring are those who belong to, belong to Christ. So just because you have a, a biological uh, ancestry going back to Abraham, in God's eyes, that doesn't, that doesn't save you. What saves you is Christ. Uh, and, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, regardless of what your biological ancestry may be. Yeah. Uh, just to clarify, Brian's question was not necessarily salvation by birth for Jews, but salvation by faith in God expressed by faithfulness to the covenant, uh, the Torah covenant, right? So right. Uh, he, I don't think he's arguing or asking the question about salvation by birth. He's asking the question of, can a, can a Jew who is faithful to the covenant of the ancestors that has been passed down throughout, you know, so much of the Bible, but who doesn't believe in Jesus, can that person who is, so far as they understand it, faithfully serving God, can they be saved in, I guess, the way in which people were saved before Christ came? Or, now that Christ has come, is everybody on the same salvation program regardless? 
Well, I think Paul uh, attempts to answer that in Romans 9 through 11. All right. And uh, we'll, we'll dig into that in a second. But first, I wanted to just kind of take a, a, a quick look at some of the arguments that Paul makes leading up to that. We see here in Galatians, as well as in Ephesians, Paul makes a really strong argument that, and really, he, he, he makes this argument in almost all of his epistles. It's a reoccurring theme in the Pauline epistles that salvation is by faith uh, and is not by the law and is not by ancestry. And it, it, even in Romans 4, he talks about how Abraham was justified by faith. So even beginning with Abraham, Paul is trying to make the argument that it's not as though God changed his mind or he changed the system, but actually it was always by faith. It was all along, it was always, salvation was always on the basis of faith, even beginning with Abraham. And uh, for the, this is why, for example, um, even though uh, God had set up this division between Jew and Gentile in the Old Testament, uh, there, were, there were exceptions. For example, Rahab is included in Hebrews 11 as a person of faith presumably someone who is saved, even though she was a Gentile. Yet, because of her faith, uh, she's included there in Romans 11, as well as Ruth, who was a Moabite, yet she's included in uh, the bloodline of Christ. So there are people who, they may not have been uh, Jews by birth, yet they were presumably saved because of faith. And this kind of goes along with some of what Paul is arguing, which is it, it was always on the basis of faith. It was never on the basis of bloodline. Paul says in Galatians 5.6, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. Uh, in other words, b- being a Jew or being a Gentile, that doesn't, that, that doesn't count for anything. The, what, what counts is faith, which expresses itself through love. And it's interesting that even Jesus kind of, although this, this teaching was really fully, re- fully revealed by the Apostle Paul, uh, Jesus kind of hinted that it was coming during his ministry. So if we look in the Gospels, uh, we find when Jesus praised the Roman centurion and he said to him, truly I tell you, in, in no one in Israel have I found such faith. That was really uh, kind of a rebuke to the Jews that, that Jesus would praise a, a Gentile as one having great faith. And also in John chapter 8, verse 44, when the Jews uh, who opposed Jesus exclaimed, Abraham is our father, which they took great pride in that fact, Jesus responded to them, you are from your father, the devil. Ouch. So, <laughs> so Jesus didn't seem to put too much stock in uh, ancestry. What, what mattered to Jesus was faith. So the, the Gentile who had faith, Jesus praised. The Jews who didn't have faith, Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. Yeah, in John chapter 8, it's interesting how Jesus really emphasizes a secondary definition of, I don't know, sonship, where... Of course, the primary definition of being a son or a daughter is a descendant of someone, a biological descendant. But Jesus really emphasizes, well, if Abraham were your father, you would do the deeds of Abraham. And there is this sense that what makes somebody a a descendant or a child of something is that they act like the progenitor. And he's saying, you're not doing that, so Abraham's not your father. It's, It's like this idea of faith expressing itself in a, a way of thinking and living and they're not doing that so they're not really even though biologically they are they're not really children of abraham right and i think jesus himself said in in, a, in another place uh anyone who does the will of my father is my brother yes. or my and, yeah. and my sister and my mother yeah he said that over against his physical family his immediate yeah. family 
Right, so Jesus really wasn't concerned with uh, the Jews. Took so much stock in ancestry; they they were, they were that they were so prideful of that they they were the descendants of Abraham. They were the chosen people. Yet Jesus, uh, he didn't he didn't put stock in that. What he what he what he put stock in was faith. And we see the same thing with John the Baptist, Matthew Matthew three nine. He says uh, to the Jews, "Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham.'" So I think that these these verses kind of set the scene for what, what we get into in, in Romans nine. But the way that the scene is being set, what God is really concerned about is a person's faith in Jesus Christ. Just because a person is from a certain bloodline doesn't seem to really give them any more uh, uh, standing before God than anyone else. But let's get into Romans nine. Okay. And, um, when, when the Gentiles were brought in in the first century, it obviously caused great controversy. Really, right. the, the the single biggest controversy in 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 the early church. Definitely. Um, it raised so many questions. You know, do do they need to keep the law? Do they need to be circumcised? And it was a teaching that uh, the, the whole idea that the majority of the Jews had missed the Messiah or rejected the Messiah. And that Gentiles were now being welcomed in as, as, as God's people. This was a teaching that many Jews, it, it was hard for them to accept. Right. I and, can see how it was set up a serious tension for them. Because right. early on, you can see how, okay, the, the movement is small, but hey, Jesus was only resurrected three years ago. Well, after 20 years, or however many years later Paul is writing Romans chapter 9, now things have kind of settled down and there there has been consistent opposition from his fellow Jews to belief in Jesus as the Messiah, whereas there has been steady a, the steady influx of God-fearers and Gentiles into covenant relationship through Christ. And so you really do get this sense when he's writing to the Romans that th- there is this tension in Rome between... Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who are all living in this city together and everyone's trying to figure out, well, how do how should we think of these people? I mean, let's say you have a brother and a sister. The sister becomes a Christian and she she still she still lives in the same household as her brother. Let's say she's not married yet. So then the the parents are, are obviously keeping the Sabbath or keeping the food laws and all this other thing. Now she's going to leave the house. She finds out that there's freedom in Christ, that she can eat whatever she wants, except for if, if food is in the process of being sacrificed to idols, that would be obviously an issue because then you're participating in that idolatry. But the next day in the marketplace, she could eat it. Anyhow, but when she's home, she's living as a Jew. And then when she's at these fellowships, she would be living as a a a Christian, and then you'll have the, her asking the question like, well, how do I think of my brother? How do I think of my parents? Like, are they in the same faith as me? Am I, is this a different faith? Because the Messiah is obviously a Jewish idea. So you can see how these sorts of inner family tensions would really be crying out for a theological answer. Like, how do I think of my Jewish brothers and sisters? How do I think of these Gentiles? Are they full members? Are they half members? I mean, we've but they had a, a developed way of thinking of Gentiles in the past as sort of like outsiders, pagans, ones that maybe someday would, would, would get it straight, but right now they're just kind of unclean. <laughs> 
So right. all, and, all this is looming in, right. in the social right. background of this and, epistle. And I think Paul himself really struggled with this because, you know, we know that Paul was, he, he, he called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees, you know, so he was brought up, you know, at the feet of Gamaliel. He was, uh, he was brought up under the law, you know, uh, zealous for the law. Early, early in his life, he probably despised Gentiles and he, he was persecuting Christians. And then, then he had this revelation and God had appointed him to, to be the apostle to the Gentiles and to, reveal, so ironic. to reveal this, uh, <laughs> this, uh, this mystery that had been revealed that Gentiles are now being welcomed in. Uh, but Paul, uh, he wrestled with this and we see this in the, in the, in the very beginning of Romans nine, where he says, I'm going to turn there right now. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them according to the flesh comes the Messiah, who is overall God-blessed forever. Amen. So Paul is really emphasizing that, you know, he, he himself is a, is a Hebrew and from, from the Jewish people came, you know, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and ultimately the Messiah. So they, they were blessed, you know, to, to, they were blessed with all these things. And yet he says, I, I've got great sorrow and, and anguish because I know that at least the majority of, uh, of them have rejected the Messiah and, been, and as a result, they've been cut off. And, and Paul is saying, like, I wish I could be cut off so that they could be brought back in. Yeah, you really you really see his heart here. Um, yeah, uh, his heart for 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 the Jewish people. Really, in Romans nine through eleven, especially in Romans nine, what what he does is he presents a series of arguments, and he's he's trying to answer the question or the the objection that Jews would have had. See, uh, the the Jews. From their perspective, it would be very hard for them to believe that most of the Jews had, had rejected the Messiah and that Gentiles were now being brought in. It's it very difficult for them to swallow that truth. Right. Because from their perspective, that would mean that God had been unfaithful to his people and that the word of God had failed. Paul makes an argument against this in, in Romans 9, beginning in verse 6. He says, It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all Israelites truly belong to Israel. And not all of Abraham's descendants are his true descendants, but it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as descendants. So again, we see this idea that uh, it's not on the basis of flesh, but it's, it's on the basis of the promise. And then to illustrate this point, he quotes Malachi 1.3, where God says, I have loved Jacob and I've hated Esau. So Esau and Jacob, were, they were both descendants of Abraham by blood. Right. Yet God chose one and he didn't choose the other. Uh, and his choosing was not on the basis of their blood because they were both descended from Abraham. But God chose them on the basis of faith, not on the basis of bloodline. Uh, so he used this as, as an illustration to show that the true children of God, the true Israel, are those who are the people of faith. Not everyone who is, quote, Israel is truly Israel, that, that there, there is a true Israel, which is on the basis of faith. Yeah. And then there's what, what people tend to think of as Israel, which is on the basis of, of ancestry, but that's not necessarily true Israel. Yeah, so he, he's pointing out that this distinction that exists in his, in his own time of some of the Israelites who have accepted Jesus as the Messiah, and then the majority who haven't. He says, look, this is not a new phenomenon. There have been basically divisions within 
the ancestry, if you go back to this time of Jacob and Esau, that the promise goes through Jacob, the, the action, so to speak, if you follow the Bible, is, is all through Jacob and his descendants. It's not through Esau, and it's not through Ishmael. So he's pointing out that this has already been happening, and so this is like an extension of that as opposed to this brand new, shocking, I can't believe this, Exactly. Uh, I mean, with Esau and Jacob, this is going like right back to the beginning. You had descendants of of Abraham who were basically cut off from the promises. Yeah. And only one descendant, Jacob, you know, inherited that promise. And so what Paul is saying is this is nothing new. This has been going on that that there are descendants of Abraham who were cut off before. And this is just a continuation of that, that now there are descendants of Abraham who have been cut off because they they didn't uh, believe in Jesus Christ. And this is just an extension of what had what has already been happening. So in verse 14, he says, then what are we to say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who, so, who shows mercy. So to the Jews who objected to Gentiles entering into the covenant family, uh, Paul argues that God has the authority to choose whoever he wants. Why did God choose Jacob over Esau? God, God is sovereign. He has the authority to choose whoever he wants. Uh, so likewise, if God wants to choose Gentiles, if he wants to bring them in, he has the authority to do that. Abraham, why did God choose Abraham, Going, taking it way back to the beginning? You know, Abraham was worshiping idols in Babylon. Right. So there, there was no reason why God would choose him rather than somebody else, but that God chose him for his own purposes. For his, it, it pleased God to choose him. We, we may never understand why God chooses the people whom he chooses to, to work out these covenants, right. uh, but he's sovereign and he has the authority to do that. Uh, so that, that, that's, that's the, uh, the argument that Paul is making here is that if God wants to reject some of his people because of their unbelief uh, and he wants to, to, to bring in some people uh, and, and accept them as his people because of their, their faith, you know, God has the authority to do that. Right. You know, what Paul is saying here, it's, it's not a new idea. Moses actually made the same point in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, where he said, it's not because you were more numerous than other people that Yahweh set his heart on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all people. It was because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors, that Yahweh has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Moses is saying to the people, you know, it's not because you were so special, because you were so numerous uh, that God chose you. He, he chose you simply because he wanted to, and he, he has the authority to do that. He has the authority to choose who, whomever he wants. Right, and that's grace. Yeah, that's grace. And then he makes an analogy uh, to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in uh, Romans 9:17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for this very purpose, for the very purpose of showing my power in you, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he chooses, and he hardens the heart of whomever he chooses. So he makes this analogy between the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and the hardening that came upon Israel, which he talks about a little bit later in chapter 11. Uh, a partial hardening that came upon Israel when they rejected the Messiah. It's really important to understand uh, the, the, this analogy. If you go back to Exodus where, where heart, uh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but the Bible also says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So we see that there's, there's not a contradiction here between the, the will of God 
and human free will, but actually they're working together to accomplish a purpose. Uh, so uh, it's not as if God overrode Pharaoh's free will uh, and, just, and just forced his heart to be hardened, whether he liked it or not. The Bible says Pharaoh hardened his own heart and God, God, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So God's will and human will were, were actually working together. Uh, they're not contradicting each other. I don't honestly have a problem if God did override his will because Pharaoh had already done so much evil. He had systematically targeted the Israelites in an attempt to genocide them through ethnic cleansing. Yeah, well, that, that's, my, that's kind of my point, though, is that God, <laughs> the hardening that so God... So that could be judgment. If God hardens right, exactly, his heart, that right, could be God's right. judgment. It See, wasn't like willy-nilly, but it right, was... Right, right. Um, well, that, that's kind of my point, is that God, God did harden Pharaoh's heart, but he didn't do it arbitrarily or for, right, no, for no reason. Right, right. He did it in response to Pharaoh hardening his own heart. So Pharaoh hardened his heart. God responded to that by hardening Pharaoh's heart. And it, it served a purpose. The purpose was so that... Uh, God's glory w- would be revealed, right. and that so everyone would know power, yeah. that Yahweh is God. Um, if Pharaoh had, you know, let them go after one plague, there might have been question like, well, that plague, and it could have just been a coincidence, <laughs> you know. So God, God had this put this hardening upon Pharaoh, so that you know there would be ten plagues, so that there'd be no question that Yahweh is the one true God. But I think that it's important to understand the the relationship between human free will and God's sovereignty that's at work there, because the same relationship is at work with Israel. Uh, when we talk about this hardening that came upon Israel, which Paul talks about in Romans 11.25, he says, I want you to understand this mystery. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And I think it's the same kind of relationship where God didn't just harden them for no reason because he's mean and he wants them to be to go to hell. Uh, he hardened them in response to their own hardening that they had already chosen, so just like he did with Pharaoh. Pharaoh chose evil, and then God responded to it with hardening his heart. So part of Brian's question was to people who said to him, well, if God's hardened my heart, then I'm not culpable. I'm, I don't have a responsibility to have faith in the Messiah. I mean, how, how can I go against God? If he's hardened my heart, then my heart is hard. I have no choice. And so when he softens it, then it'll be soft, and then I'll accept right. it. Right. You're saying that that line of thinking is completely invalid because right. that's that's not how the hardening works. That's not how God operates. God doesn't... God, the Bible says God wants all people to be saved. Right. You know, and so God does not... And certainly his own people that he's worked with exactly. for thousands of years right. would be chief among all people. Right. <laughs> right. So God God is not hardening them because he just wants them to go to hell. He's, he, he, the hardening is in response to their own decisions that they have already made, which they are, they, they are responsible and accountable for. And it's interesting that you bring up that, that objection because the Apostle Paul actually anticipated that, that very same objection in the next verse. In verse 19, he says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So the Jews would be arguing, they would, they would present this objection, if a hardening is, if God has hardened our hearts so that we, we didn't accept the Messiah, how can God blame us for that if right. it was God who, who was hardening us? And Paul just kind of dismisses that whole objection in verse 20. Who are you, a human being, to argue with God? Well, well, what is molded say to the one who molds it? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one object for special use and another for ordinary use? So Paul, he answers that objection by just appealing to the authority and the sovereignty of God. And basically saying, look, God is the potter. 
we're the clay. God can do what he pleases. So if, if he wants to place a, a partial hardening upon Israel for a temporary period of time, he can do that. He's God. And, 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 and you can't object and say, well, 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 why would he still find fault? Because God, God does as he pleases, and everything that God does is just, and everything that God does is right. Uh, but I think it's important to understand that this hardening is not so that because God ha- you know, hates Israel and wants to destroy them. It's, it's in response to what they have already done. And yeah. it, it's, it's only a temporary hardening uh, because he says it's until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. It serves a purpose so that the gospel would, would spread out to the Gentiles. Uh, it's temporary until the, the full number has come in, and it's only partial. It's only upon part of Israel. So those Jews that did recognize the Messiah and they believed, they're not included in this hardening. It's, it's only those who rejected the Messiah that, that this hardening came, came upon them. So this is then an explanation why so many of his fellow Jews did not accept Jesus and are continuing on. Exactly, because that, that probably was the single biggest question in the minds of every Jewish believer in the first century was, if Jesus is truly the Messiah, if he really is the, the anointed king that we've been waiting for, that, that you know, God promised that David, one of your descendants, will rule the world forever, uh, that the prophets foretold, Isaiah talked about it, Jeremiah talked about this Messiah. Uh, if Jesus really is this Messiah, how is it possible that most of the Jewish people missed it and they didn't recognize him as being the Messiah? How is that? This, this, this question would have been just mind-boggling. So Paul is trying to answer that question by showing that this isn't uh, something crazy that, that nobody expected, but actually this was part of, it, it might seem like this major plot twist that the Jews would miss their own Messiah. Right. <laughs> Who expected that? <laughs> However, Paul is saying that actually this was all part of the plan from the beginning. And that there's a purpose to and it. And there's a purpose to, to it. bring yeah, the and Gentiles the, in, and yeah. then for the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to jealousy, to bring them back Exactly, in. exactly. And, and Paul talks about that jealousy later in the chapter. We'll, we'll get to that. So Paul is arguing that um, it, it might seem crazy. It might seem like the biggest plot twist in history, that the Jewish people who had been expecting this Messiah for thousands of years, that they would, that they would not recognize their, their own Messiah. But actually, this had, that this had been prophesied about in the Old Testament that this very thing would happen, and that it was all part of God's plan to work out a greater purpose, which was the salvation of the whole world and the inclusion of all people, the people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and ethnicity would be welcomed into the kingdom of God through this whole thing happening. Right. And, you, and you do have the seeds of that, even in just the name Abraham itself, the idea right. and the promises God made to Abra- Abraham originally, a point Paul makes much of in Galatians, that his name means father of the nations, fa- not, not just the nation, but m- multiple nations, the goyim, you know, and so... Although it might seem like a plot twist at the end here in the time of Paul, this is actually something God had in mind really from the beginning, that he would work through Israel to open up salvation to the nations. That's exactly what God said in Isaiah, which I think even Brian uh, mentioned this in Isaiah uh, 49.6, where he said, Israel will be a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Uh, so even though the Jews really, they were very nationalistic and they, they really prided themselves on, you know, we are the chosen people, we are the ones who are saved. But all along, it was always God's plan for salvation to reach the ends of the earth and for all people of all nations to be brought into his kingdom. 
And that's the point that Paul is making here, that you, you shouldn't be surprised that this happened. To the Jews that were upset that Gentiles were being brought in, that they weren't keeping the law, they weren't being circumcised, Paul is basically rebuking them and saying, you shouldn't be upset that Gentiles are being brought in. This was, this was part of the plan from the beginning. This was always God's heart that all people of the world uh, would be saved. I, I don't want to get too deep into this because it's really a different topic, but I do want to just touch on some of the ways that people misinterpret this passage. Okay. Um, because unfortunately, when, when Paul, these verses here where Paul is talking about the potter and the clay uh, are commonly misunderstood. And it's because people are now reading them in this larger context that we've been talking about. They're not understanding the, the issues that Paul is dealing with. Unfortunately, many Calvinists uh, kind of take these verses out of context and they, they say, well, there you have it. God is, God is the potter. He, he can make one vessel for honorable use, one for dishonorable use. And so uh, then they interpret so it then, as individual yeah, exactly. election. So then they say, well, you know, God makes one, he, he chooses one person at, from the beginning of time. He predestines one person for salvation, one person for condemnation. But that's really uh, totally foreign to the issue that Paul is dealing with here. Uh, personal salvation is not even an issue that he's talking about. If you read this in the context, he's dealing with the covenants. He's dealing with, um, he's dealing with the, the the Jews versus the Gentiles, the people of the, who who is Israel, who is the people of God. Yeah, I can um, also add to that. Even that text where he says, "Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated." Even that text itself is using those two names representationally because. They, they, these, these were people who had died long before, but Jacob in that prophecy refers to Israel, and Esau refers to the Edomites. You know, the, these right. are talking about people right. groups right. all throughout the chapter, not individual right. salvation. His point there is not that God chose one person versus another person, but that He chose one nation versus exactly. another nation. Yeah. So to the Jews, they were saying, "Well, how could other nations be brought into the into the covenant family?" He's saying, well, that was always how it was, even from the, from the beginning. Uh, so personal salvation is not even yeah, a topic that is being discussed in these chapters. And it's unfortunate when people just pull these verses out of context and apply them to personal salvation when that's not actually what Paul is talking about. And just real briefly, I wanted to just mention Jeremiah chapter 18, because when Paul talks about the potter and the clay, he's really referencing back to Jeremiah chapter 18 where God told Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house. And when Jeremiah went down to the potter's house, he saw a potter who was shaping a clay vessel. Uh, but the clay was very stubborn and, and hard, and it didn't want to cooperate. Into the, it didn't want to be shaped into the shape he was trying to make. So eventually he just, he just gave up and he shaped it into something else. And uh, God says in chapter 18, verse 5, uh, the word of the Lord came to me, can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done? And then he says in verse uh, 7, At one moment I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck it up and, and break it down and destroy it. But if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring on it. And at another moment I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build it up and plant it. But if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will change my mind about the good that I had intended to do to it. So the whole point with the potter and the clay here is that uh, the potter actually doesn't force the clay to do what he wants. Oh. He actually shapes the clay in response to the condition of the clay. So if the clay is not cooperating and it's being stubborn, rather than forcing it, the potter will actually just change his mind and he'll shape it into something else other than what he originally planned. So the, the whole message that's being communicated here is actually the opposite of what Calvinism teaches. 
Uh, it's actually the potter. <laughs> it's a little ironic. <laughs> the potter is actually shaping the clay in response to the clay's will, uh, which is a, uh, a little bit surprising. But uh, that's that's exactly what God is saying. Is he? He's he's responding in, in in response to human free will. Uh, he he does choose or he elects certain people to justification, sanctification, salvation, but he doesn't do it arbitrarily or for no reason. He does so in response to human faith, our decision to to believe in Jesus Christ. On the one hand, you were throwing the S word around a little bit earlier that God is sovereign. And anyone who's Calvinist listening to this probably got really excited. And now it sounds like you're affirming the exact opposite point of view that God responds to our our will is like pushing God aw- around in a sense but like uh, but, but, I think- but the two the two concepts are not contradictory God is sovereign he could override our free will and just force us to do whatever, whatever he wants he has the authority to do that he has the power to do that but he he doesn't choose to do that he's sovereign but he chooses to 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 work in this way in which he responds to our free will and and he's still getting done what he wants to get done right so he might not do it with this piece of clay he might make this into just some sort of dishonorable vessel because it's it's not functioning well enough to be used for something some piece of fine ceramic vessel but he is going to get that fine ceramic vessel somehow. He'll get another piece of clay to do it exactly know, so. and and that that is Paul's point here in Romans 9 is that God had chosen Israel and he had raised him up for this purpose to yeah. be this vessel of honor. But if, if they reject him and they reject the Messiah, he's just going to reshape them in, into a vessel of dishonor. And he's going to take Gentiles who are a vessel of dishonor and he can reshape them into a vessel of honor. So Because they're now bending right. to his will, the Gentiles, right. whereas before they weren't. So the point is not that God chooses these vessels from the beginning of time and they never change. The point is actually that God can reshape these vessels according to their condition and their will and this is just like romans 11 with the uh the, the tree the olive tree of faith exactly. same same kind of metaphor there where branches get broken off because of unbelief right and then other branches get grafted in from the wild olive tree which is the the nations but they are only going to stay so long as they have faith and those branches that were broken off can be brought back in if they do change exactly. so that's that's really the same kind of exactly. idea right this is an important verse here in Romans 9, 25. He quotes back to the Old Testament to show that this inclusion of the Gentiles and the rejection of unbelieving Israel was always part of the plan. In fact, this, this very thing had been prophesied about. He says, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not called my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there shall be called children of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel were like the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will execute his sentence on the earth quickly and decisively. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left survivors to us, we would have fared like Sodom and been made like Gomorrah. In Romans 10, 19, he again quotes the Old Testament. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation, and with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So this is talking about the Gentiles being brought in. And then to Isaiah, then, then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But if Israel, he says, all day long, I held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. 
So Paul is showing through all of these Old Testament passages that this was always part of the plan, that God would bring in the Gentiles, and it's for the purpose of actually making the Jews jealous a little bit, which is exactly what they were experiencing in the first century, uh, so that that would actually lead them to a place of hopefully believing in Jesus Christ and accepting him as being the Messiah. In Romans 9.30, he makes a little bit of a concluding statement uh, before he makes a few other arguments in in the next chapter. Uh, But in in 9.30, he says, So what are we to say then? Gentiles who did not strive for righteousness have attained it, that is, righteousness through faith. But Israel, who did strive for righteousness based on the law, did not succeed in fulfilling that law. Why not? Because they did not strive for it on the basis of faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make people stumble, a rock that will make them fall. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I can testify that they have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. That's a big statement. So just real quickly in Romans 11, Paul answers that question, has God rejected his people? And he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. So his answer to that question, has God rejected his people, referring to Israel, his answer is he has not rejected them because there is a remnant chosen by grace, and that's referring to the Jews who believed and accepted Christ as the Messiah. Um, so it doesn't mean that every person biologically descended from, from Jacob would be saved, but it means that there is a remnant. That's exactly what Paul said when he said, you know, uh, quoting the Old Testament, though the number of the children of Israel is like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. And that remnant is chosen on the basis of faith in Christ. So let's bring it back to the original question, which was, what if somebody who is familiar with Christian treatment of Jews throughout history, and he gives the, remember Brian gave the examples of Tertullian, Chrysostom, Spanish Inquisition, Martin Luther, and so on. If you are raised from a young age to believe that the Christian nations throughout time have persecuted your people, and they have coerced and forced and tortured and maimed and killed. It's really hard for that person to take seriously the evangelist when they encounter him or her, who says, come to Jesus. He's the Jewish Messiah. He fulfills all the yearnings of your heart and of your people. It's hard to take that seriously. So his question is, well, can't these people just be faithful to the, the old covenant and still be okay? What I, what I hear you saying is pretty much no. <laughs> yeah, as much sympathy as um, we can have for those people in their situation, which is brought about by, by human sin and the unfaithfulness of right. so-called Christians. Right, and, and these, these uh, to, to set the record straight, these so-called Christians are not staying true to the way of Jesus. Right. Because Jesus right. commanded us to love our enemies. Exactly. And torturing them and killing them right. is obviously not loving. Right, right. But Paul makes it very clear in pretty much all of his epistles that the law did not bring salvation. 
In fact, the law never brought salvation. Mm -hmm. That even the people that thought they were being saved by the law, they were actually being saved by Christ who was to come. Now that he came, you know, the, the situation has changed. And it, so Jesus said, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Mm-hmm. If a Jew who, uh, or if anybody who does not believe, you know, comes to a place of believing in Jesus as the Messiah, that person will be saved. But apart from that, uh, I don't see anywhere in Scripture where it would indicate that there's another another uh, method of salvation that's available. In fact, Paul said that if the law could save, Jesus would never have had to die. Paul said it, if it were possible yeah. for the law to save, there would be no point in Jesus even dying because we could just be saved through the law. So Paul makes it clear that you know, uh, Christ's death on the cross was really, it was the only way that sinful humanity could be saved. Yeah. Um, in a sense, if we said yes, it's okay for an Orthodox Jew to just remain faithful to the covenant that God had cut with the people through Moses on Mount Sinai, then that is on the one hand saying that, well, Jesus really didn't have to come then, and it cheapens his salvation mission. And it also kind of lets us off the hook or lets one people off the hook, whereas like all the other people of the earth, whether they're Africans or Australians or English people, whatever, they all have to believe in Jesus. But the Jews don't because they have an inside relationship with God that's based on all these thousands of years of, of, of history. What we're reading here, though, is that, or especially in that text from Galatians you read, there is no Jew, there is no Greek, not anymore. I mean, these things have been broken down because of the Jew, Jesus, and faith in God and relationship with God and covenant with God has gone public through these events that have ha- that are related to the Christ coming and dying and being raised and ascending and reorganizing the sort of way that authorities are in heaven and also how God relates to all peoples on the earth. I mean, it's just, Jesus is just that big of a deal. It's not like in the time of David when he assigned the Levites to now be singers because they're not carrying the ark anymore. I mean, that's a, that's a nice change. It's a minor change. It's rational. But like, if somebody's like, well, I think it was wrong, who cares? You know, like you've got, you don't like the choir, so don't, don't come, okay, when the choir sings. But <laughs> this is too big, the whole Jesus event. Exactly. <laughs> it's not as if Jesus came and he died on the cross so that, you know, Gentiles could believe in him and be saved, but the Jews could just continue what they were doing. Because right. Paul says the whole division, the whole idea of Jew and Gentile, that, that entire concept has been eliminated. Right. There's one new humanity. It's through Christ. Yep. Uh, so there, there is not even Jew or Gentile anymore. All right. Uh, do you have any other final thoughts you wanted to say? This conversation would be lacking if we didn't look at the end of Romans 11, because this is really where things get a little bit messy. <laughs> uh, all right, let's go there. <laughs> so Paul, as we just saw in, in Romans chapter 9 through 11, Paul, he, he makes a series of arguments showing that not all Israel will be saved. In fact, he specifically says that, that only a remnant will be saved. It's, it's on the basis of faith, and it, it's always been that way, and it's always been part of God's plan for it to be that way. But then in Romans 11, uh, it, he makes a concluding statement here that might seem a little bit surprising. Uh, in verse 25, he says, So that you may not claim to be wiser than you are, brothers and sisters. I want you to understand this mystery. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of Gentiles has come in. 
And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, out of Zion will come the deliverer. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their ancestors. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they now have been disobedient in order that, by the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all to disobedience, so that he may be merciful to all. So here Paul makes this statement, all Israel will be saved, which seems a little surprising and a little bit contradictory to everything he had just been talking about. Right. I think to understand this, you really have to go back to his main point. It's really kind of his thesis statement for this whole argument in Romans 9, 6, where he says, not all who are Israel are Israel. So it, it, it's a true statement, all Israel will be saved. But you have to understand from God's perspective, who is Israel? And God defines Israel in the post-Christ era as those who believe in Jesus Christ. Okay. Uh, he, he, God is no longer recognizing Israel on the basis of, of bloodline. That's been done away with. And now it's being defined purely on the basis of faith. Otherwise, it would be a contradiction, because you can't right. say in one place a partial hardening is happening and all this, and then another place all Israel will be saved. I guess the only other way to resolve that would be to say all of the other places that the Apostle Paul teaches that you're not saved by birth, you're not saved by ancestry, you're not saved by the works of the law, um, he's contradicting here by saying, well, yeah, but in the end, we're all going to be saved anyhow, because let's face it, we're, we're, the, we're God's chosen people. I mean, I, I feel like to go that route with it is just to pull Paul apart and to sort of like intentionally defy the integrity of his arguments in every other place that he talks about the same subject. So I think, I think the way you're handling it here is almost like the Israel of God kind right. of perspective right. rather than ethnic Israel. Right. And I think the only other possible way to resolve this tension is if there were some kind of second chance, say when Christ comes back at the resurrection, you know, if, if there were some kind of second chance that now they could recognize him as being the Messiah. But I don't think that there's enough uh, evidence of that in scripture to really say that that, that is the case. And Paul doesn't really say that here. He we don't really see that in scripture, so I, I would be uh, reluctant to take that view, you know? Right. Well, what we said in the episode that Brian originally commented on is that, hey, this is a possibility for a post-mortem encounter, but, at this, but we can't put weight on that because what it, you, know, you don't want to base your life on a possibility, in the end. Right. You want right. to base it on what is sure and steadfast. I mean, Christ is the rock. He's the cornerstone. Build your foundation on him. Right. And I think where, where Paul says here that the gifts and the calling are, are irrevocable, he says, as regards the gospel, they're enemies of God because they, they don't accept the gospel. As regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their ancestors, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all of them are, are going to be saved. I think what right. just what that means is God called them. He, he, he chose them for this purpose. Maybe they've wandered away from that purpose. He still has that call. He still wants them to come back. He still, right. he still wants them to fulfill the purpose to which he called them. The calling has not been revoked. So in other words, God has kept his end of, of the bargain, but they, they have failed to keep their end. So God is still calling them to come back to be the people that he's called them to be. So that, that doesn't guarantee salvation. I think it should be pointed out that, you know, just because someone was part of ethnic Israel never guaranteed salvation. You know, they were unbelieving Jews that were not saved all throughout the Old Testament. 
again, just inclusion in a covenant or a calling of God is not necessarily salvation. Paul makes it very clear repeatedly in his epistle, salvation is only through faith in Jesus right. Christ. Right. All right. Well, thanks for coming in, Matt, and clarifying this. This is a, a perennial topic of discussion today with Jew and Gentile relations, and especially Messianic Jews who seem to be sitting on the fence <laughs> about a lot of these issues. And if we have a clear understanding of what it takes to be saved, what it takes to be in a right relationship with God through what he's done in Christ and everything else, then I think that will motivate us to be a little more focused on bringing these subjects up, be a little more evangelistic when we are talking to Orthodox Jewish people or Messianic Jewish people. So uh, I appreciate you taking the time to work through this with us here today. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for taking the time to listen into this interview. If you'd like to listen to another interview with Elton that I did way back when he was in high school, I have included a link in the show notes to an episode of a previous podcast called Truth Matters, where he talked about churchology versus Christianity and his high school experience. Also, I have a link in the show notes for a number of his articles that he's written over the years, one of which goes through Romans 9 through 11 in much more detail than we've been able to do here. It's over 7,000 words long. So if you want to dig deeper, please check that out too in the show notes or visit restitudio.org and click on interview 17 will all Israel be saved. You'll be able to read those. If you haven't already, please review us in iTunes so that other people can find this podcast. And thanks to those of you who have already done so. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.